Welcome everyone, and we're Gaming Daily here at SNGP40. I'm your host, David Brad, former writer of Games Industry Biz, Industry Gamers, and GamerFeed. With me, somebody wishing they could cancel some people as effectively as the ESA has done with E3. It's my editor, contributor, and partner in potting, Tuesday. Oh, I have the list ready. Uh, it's just a large document. <laughs> it extends to like 10 pages, uh, but there's some personal <laughs> stuff on that as well. So, but yes. <laughs> yeah, that was the only thing I could think of when uh, the official news came down but we'll honestly be getting to that in a bit in news around e3 Mm -hmm. but i want to get started with noting something about us and the production of sngp 40 episodes in Uh, as i've noted multiple times before like this is just a hobby for us like me and tuesday have other responsibilities and because of that like this has to just be done in our free time. And uh, me and Tuesday have talked it over, and we have uh, decided that we're going to be altering the schedule a little bit of SNGP uh, from now on. We still definitely want to produce this, but like just because of the time required to like both produce it beforehand and then edit down afterwards, it's becoming uh, honestly a bit of a strain for us on a weekly basis. So... We are going to be shifting towards a bi-weekly basis that is not going to alter like the content of it, but I will give some exceptions. We are going to, if there is, say, like a big event that happens in the interim week, we might do a podcast specifically on that topic that is purely going to be based on a judgment call between me and Tuesday, but... We're doing that for just our personal mental health and well-being. If this thing gets off the ground, it becomes somehow something huge that it's somehow a full-time endeavor, then that would be great. But we aren't there yet. So this is a step taken for our own personal well-being. Mm-hmm. Very excited to continue doing this. But yeah, the switching the schedule will be beneficial for both of us and uh our content as well yes certainly like i said i don't want to actually change the nature of our content very much at all but we'll probably be obviously a little bit more choosy about like which uh, news stories we're covering just for discussion but overall there shouldn't be a huge change except for frequency in the time And I do just want to note, like, if you want to support us, like, again, like, our Patreon is at patreon.com slash and we appreciate any support you give, and certainly, in the least, like, if you're listening, we appreciate that as well. But to switch over to housekeeping for the week, I want to give, as an update for developer four quarters, and those are the Loop Hero developers... Uh, payments are difficult for the company right now, given the state of the banking system in Russia. So now they're simply recommending that people pirate the game. Uh, as the developers have indicated, they'll be fine. The game has sold over 2 million copies, so they've probably 
made their money. It's also worth noting that like their publicly stated anti-war stance has earned them the antipathy of many of their fellow countrymen. And one of the developers has already fled to the relative safety of nearby Georgia. That's uh, that I, you know, I'm I'm coming around on them. I know that uh, last time we talked about them, you said that the um, stance that they had was just a pin tweet that said we are anti-war, which I I won't I will be honest, I thought was a little you know um, half-hearted. Uh, didn't didn't feel fully all the way through. It felt more like a obligation. Um, hearing this, that they are recommending pirating the game, which is something that uh, right now in Russia is mostly recommended because Russia is being Russia at the moment, uh, as it were. I and and hearing that one of them has fled the country, I'm I'm willing to uh, step back and say, okay, they are actually concerned about this event. You know, like, I mean, there, there are some times where someone says something uh, in response to a global event and it just says, you're ticking a box. Uh, that's how it felt to me. But this is very clearly them saying, yeah, this is a problem that we don't like. Yeah, it's, well, it's become even clearer, like, as the weeks have gone on. I don't want to get into it too in-depth, but, like, the response inside of Russia has, like, really... Uh, hardened in the case of the uh, the war here, like probably as uh, as the situation is ground on, and I feel like just the sense of the sense of being attacked, feeling like they're being attacked. That's what their media is presenting at it. So like the and also just the rally around the flag effect for it, like has made being like having a, an anti-war stance uh, very difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. And I will just add, disappointingly, Valve has taken no stance on sales to Russia when it comes to Steam. Though payments have been interrupted to both Russia and Ukraine because of various sanctions. They said they were hoping to resolve it in the next month. Though the statement, due to the current environment, we are unable to send bank payments to Belarus, Russia, and Ukraine. And that was a statement that was rightfully criticized. Uh, since the current environment is a war in uh, in Ukraine of, of Russia's choosing. It's all disappointing, though it did re- result in me finding this unverifiable comment. Literally got kicked out of a CSGO lobby full of Russians, just asked them if this map was called Ukraine because they were dying like flies. <laughs> oh, oh, that's, that's, uh, that's something that's... Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that's... Uh, like I said, unverifiable, but I, I had a good laugh over that. But I, I did get a chuckle out of that. <laughs> yeah. But to switch over to what's been lighting up our system this week, I've been talking about the developers a lot, and so I might as well mention what I've been doing in the game, and that is Loop Hero. Yeah, tell me about that. I have been playing this game quite a bit over the past couple weeks or so. It's a really interesting game. It is certainly very unique. Like, I think when we talk about like actual original games and original game concepts, there really aren't much out there that is uh, genuinely original. At least not like this. And I would say like having now racked up quite a few games in uh, Loop Hero, it is a m- mashup of simulation 
deck building, at least as far as like the randomly generated uh, cards, which you can then lay down on the tiles, uh, RPG and roguelike. Uh, and part of the reason that it's a simulation is that many aspects of it are are like a roguelike. Like everything is very run based when you start a loop. Like you start everything over. The world forgets as is put in the story. But you do not actually control your character. They move around the loop automatically, and they also fight automatically. And it is up to you to basically lay down the tiles that... Uh, and it is actually beneficial to you to lay down tiles that will generate enemies, because like enemies are the only way that you'll get new uh, items like which will also be more tiles but also like new equipment uh, which is necessary in order to become more powerful and that is one of the big factors like when it comes to uh, active participation as such as it were is like you need to be looking in looking at equipment as it comes in and managing it and also deciding like not based upon the raw levels items do have a level but like Sometimes a slightly lower level item might have some abilities that's more handy. Like, particularly for the warrior class, there are three classes. For the warrior class, like, vampirism is a big thing. Like, vampirism basically says you absorb this percentage of life from your attack uh, back into your own life. Like, that's obviously very beneficial to have. Uh, for the rogue class... Uh, attack speed and evasion and also getting your criticals up is very critical since like uh, pun not intended <laughs> because like uh, uh, the rogue like has two weapons unlike the fighter which has a sword and a shield so they have better defense but like the rogue can potentially attack far faster uh, and do far more damage uh, the rogue also has no items with vampirism, but they have a base vampirism level of 5%. So attacking quickly like helps you also recover more quickly, potentially. And the final class is Necromancer. And they're all about summoning in skeletons uh, to, f to fight on your side. Like Attack speed is actually important there because they summon in skeletons at the rate of their attack speed. I, uh, I could see that getting pretty powerful if, if you did that right. Uh, it certainly can be. I've had probably the most difficulty with that just because I found that requires the most particular items uh, to find. Yeah. And that is, a, that is, again, like, a it's a typical roguelike issue, I would say, in that, like, sometimes you just don't get the right items. And you need to be continually getting the right items in order to become more powerful. Mm -hmm. Because, like, enemies, every time you complete a loop around the looped path that your character uh, walks, the enemies grow more powerful. So, if you're not getting the items you need, then your chances of dying go way up. That, by itself, is, however, like, only part of the game. On top of that, there's actually a base you're building out. Like, you're getting resources, and you're, and those resources are used in building different structures in your home base. Uh, so, some of which allow you to have more cards that you can use in your deck, so to speak. So, some of which like unlock the two optional classes, which are rogue and necromancer, uh, 
some unlock gold cards, which are a special secondary card, which you can have one, which include the ability to get hit points every time you kill an enemy, but at the cost of like armor not adding to your hit point. I don't think that one is very good. There's a gold card that is called the Arsenal, and that one is particularly good. That will add an extra slot uh, to every hero that like they can add an extra item, but it slightly reduces the quality of the items you receive. And there's also one that basically just summons the boss of the loop at will. Because that's the thing, like, as you're laying down tiles, like, w when you reach a certain number of tiles laid down, the boss will be summoned on the camp, and uh, in that loop you have to decide, like, okay, like, am I going to be engaging the boss or not? You can summon the boss at will, right, once, once they are available? Or is it, that's just a specific item? Um, with the item, okay. which is a, uh a maze as it is described like that will just that gold card if you have that you can summon the boss at any time if you have that but if you lay down a certain number of tiles like there's a bar that that is building up as you lay down tiles and when it when it maxes out then the boss is summoned okay does um does the boss level like scale with how many tiles you have if if you have that item or is it just here's here's when the boss is coming out one way or another the boss actually scales to the number of loops you do. Okay. So that actually, I actually discovered that. Uh, I actually had to look look that up online. Like I will say, the the game is not heavily tutorialized. Mm -hmm. There is a very basic tutorial of the mechanics, but like most of it, I've kind of had to discover for myself or look online. And that was another thing that I had to confirm. Like it's not too surprising that like. Every other enemy goes more powerful in every loop, but like that also applies to the bosses. So that made me realize that like the play it safe tactics I had had of, of basically laying down different lights to make sure that like not too many enemies would congregate in any one given area, which was a good way to to avoid getting killed basically. But like I was leveling up too slowly, mm -hmm. so I did have to adjust that. Yeah, I believe, um, I want to say that it's the most recent um, Sheer and the Wanderer game, which is the fifth one, which has been made three times. Different story. But I believe that there's a similar system with that in, in one of the dungeons. I, I think it's even a bonus dungeon. That, like, the more you play, the higher the level the boss is. So it kind of scales to you. So it's going to be difficult regardless. Yeah, in this particular case, there are four bosses... Uh, the first boss, the Lich, is, I, I would say, like, that's... You don't have to make a ton of progress in order to uh, get the Lich down. That just requires, like, learning a bit about the game, learning what works. Uh, also helping me is, like, I got a... When you level up in the game, like, you get a an optional trait, basically. You, you get to choose from three chosen at random. And one of them I got was, like, a... Uh, oblivion bonus which like replace all my other cards with like oblivion cards and what oblivion cards do is they allow you to uh, destroy something on a tile now this can be handy since like when you place down a certain number of is certain environmental tiles like then you will want to place down like such as forest tiles after a certain number of times they will 
I think it's 10, then that will produce along the loop a, th a thing called a village. Hmm. Uh, normally, villages are places that you can visit and get some health back, but this what but the question mark village instead has wooden mannequin people that when you attack them, they counterattack. So those can be kind of dangerous, to be frank. So like destroying those is sometimes not a bad idea. And like after a certain number of mountain tiles, it will produce a goblin nest and goblins tend to come out very very quickly uh, and de uh, depending on where they're placed like if you're encountering like four enemies at once that can be just a huge problem and like you have all these goblins attacking you at once and they also tend to attack very fast so like just getting a chance to destroy that is helpful but in this case i was able to use oblivion cards and destroy the lich's palace like the first boss the lich he will uh, basically all these uh the tiles surrounding the opening camp area when he comes in like will turn into the, to the lich's palace and it will note that the lich's uh hp and damage will go up by five percent for every one of those tiles so in this case, I just had a bunch of Oblivion cards, so I eliminated all those tiles, and that was pretty key in getting me to actually be able to defeat the Lich. Uh, but that's one of those, you know, and here the real loop hero begins. Uh, and leading to the fact that, like, honestly, at like getting the resources from every run that you do like that's critical to again like getting buildings you eventually get the ability to uh have items and put that like food and tools and those will give various bonuses you're basically building inevitability for yourself but like it does take time and there's also definitely a push-pull between like, okay, do I just want to go for one more loop, or do I want to, like, uh, actually retreat at this point? Like, when, when you're within one tile of the campsite, then you can essentially, like, retreat and keep all of your resources. If you retreat at any other time in the, in the loop, you, you keep only 60% of your resources. And if you die, then you get only 30% of your resources. So... It's a real push-pull between, like, okay, like, do I push it? Like, what's worth it in this one account encounter? Can I make it through this? And those balances have to be made all the time, especially since, I mean, depending on the encounter, like, which enemies they are, and, like, and also some RNG, it can be, like, okay, I, like, I went from fine to, like, nearly dead after this, after this one encounter. Now, I, I was kind of a bit... Uh, honestly cool on the rogue when it first came in but like after I discovered that like again like attack speed is very very critical for it uh, like that that was actually the one that I was able to be, beat the, uh, the, th the third boss with the fighter like I would say the biggest advantage for them is like one ability which like lets them basically have a shield equivalent to the amount of hp they have at these at the start of every run and it's just a base shield that that like doesn't regenerate but like 
Uh, if you have that skill, it's like, okay, like if I have a thousand hit points, then I have a thousand in the shield, and it just, and damage goes to that before your HP starts depleting. Uh, and that was critical on beating boss one and boss two for me. But uh, the third boss, I, d down with Rogan, just having a extremely f fast attack and, uh, and, that that was that and i'm i'm to the the fourth boss now but like the fourth boss is actually a boss rush you have to get through all three previous bosses on this run so i'm just working on that but it's interesting i'm generally liking it it's a nice game to have up while listening to something up especially since like you're not actively controlling the pl uh, player actions. Uh, it is an auto player to a degree, but still obviously requires like some decisions around equipment and, and tiles and whatnot. But if I have any, like one concerted criticism of it is just that honestly to make progress in it after a certain point, it just does require a lot of grinding. Like there's no amount of strategy that's going to help things. Like you just need to be building up your base and gaining resources. And that's just going to take uh, a number of loops wherein like, you're just going to have to acknowledge like, you know what? Like I'm not actually going to be powerful enough to take on the boss this run or like even get to the boss in this run. Like that will happen sometimes. So, Mm -hmm. There, there are definitely some uh, some roguey games that I've played like that that you just have to accept that uh, to get to um, unlocking more stuff or doing more stuff, you just have to make a passive progress. Uh, Rogue Rogue Legacy is one of those ones that definitely leans on that a lot. Yeah, yeah, and like that's that's something that like I've occasionally found frustrating but like definitely having the putting it all together and reaching the next level of of things it feels good and it does feel good to be like always making that passive progress in your base uh, I I didn't know quite what uh, to fully expect when I had to know there like there are a ton of systems in the game like it, the game is is just riddled with systems but you know, I'm enjoying it, and I am continuing to make progress on this side. Like I said, like it's just a, it like it's that roguelike appeal that it has to it. It's just like it's easy to potentially go in and just like spend forty minutes on it, like or a half hour or something. Like it's it's not too hard to spend that much time on it and still feel like you got something out of that session. So, yeah, yeah, that's uh, that to me. That's the appeal of roguelikes is just that ability to just sit down and know what you're doing and and again unlike elden ring or or dark souls um <laughs> you, you, it's just that nice little you can wrap it up in in a nice little segment and say okay i've, I've done this for today yeah there that is certainly that is certainly possible and i also looked on like like to, to get to the actual real ending like and beat the final boss like and i, I won't uh, spoil any parts of the of the story but like it's a uh like it, i mean the setup is basically that the universe is ending and you're trying to discover why and how it and what means uh but like it's perfectly fine i'm pushing things forward it's not a hugely story driven game there's a lot of uh sar sarcastic Eastern European, uh, you know, Slavic dialogue to it. Uh, 
there uh there's a lot of great pixel art out there uh for the game uh so you know i'm i'm relatively positive on it and it's definitely one of uh, the most unique experiences i've genuinely had in a while but for my uh loop here opening segment of this entire podcast i guess opening 25 minutes tuesday what has been lighting up your system lately yeah, I have uh, just been returning to an old favorite of mine, uh, something that if we were doing the podcast in 2020, I would have put in my uh, favorite game of that year. I played uh, some more of Trials of Mana, uh, the remake that came out in Nintendo Switch in 2020. I think it was even the end of the same month that Final Fantasy VII Remake came out. Uh, Square clearly didn't have much faith in it. Um, but it is, I, I love the game personally. Uh, when I got it, I played through one of the campaigns and then just kind of set it down. Uh, last year, 2021, they re-updated it with a new uh, version of the New Game Plus that lets you carry over more stuff. So I restarted it again, and then I put it down to focus on other stuff. I picked it back up and uh, have a couple more new impressions on it. Um, the first playthrough that I played through, I played as Reese, I believe her name is. Uh, she is... Technically, her beginning class is called Valkyrie. Uh, it's largely a uh, spear-based class, um, and it doesn't super excel in magic. It does a good amount of physical damage, um, but largely what Trials of Mana does is that you pick three characters that you want to see the story through, and the protagonist character that you see, you'll see most of their story, uh, as well as uh, side stories, interactions with two of the other characters, uh, I believe that it is set up that at least um, every character has an interaction with someone else in the party. So, for example, the first run through, I picked uh, Reese, Charlotte, and Jessica. Um, Reese and Sh Jessica interact with each other in that um, both of their main antagonists um, are the same person. So, a lot of the stories that uh, interact with Reese interact with Jessica. Um, in this uh, run, I picked Jessica, um, Duran, and Hawk, I believe his name is. It has been a long time since I've played this game, so I can't remember his, uh, name. But this is a much different run-through in that, um, my main character being Jessica excels at dark magic, uh, which this is a traditional, um, Square Enix kind of, uh, joint in that fashion, in that they largely build white magic as healing, black magic as uh, damage-dealing magic. Um, because of this, uh, Jessica is not a great fighter. <laughs> I, I am finding that largely Duran is the one who does the most damage, and it is, uh, it's taking me a little bit of getting used to in that fashion, in that if I want to pull off combos. It's not a super in-depth action RPG. You do have a light and heavy attack, um, but it is it is something that if you are going to want to run a physical build, uh, there are a couple characters that can do that, but you're going to want to buff the strength stat in that. Um, you're, you're really going to be just relying on the heavy and light attacks. Uh, Jessica does not do that well. She is not good at that. <laughs> I, I am finding that her heavy attack does less damage than Duran's light attack. So, <laughs> um, that that is interesting. I, I do want to note I did not pick the 
what is considered the challenge run of this game because there are three characters that you can pick that at no point in their skill tree they learn healing magic. So you're going to have to rely on items. I am not doing that. Uh, I believe at some point in the line um, that you can build Hawk up to that he can learn healing magic, but right now I am not that far. So I'm kind of doing a little bit of a challenge run. But it's not that much of a challenge run because there are still healing magics that I can do and I do have an excess of items with this being a new game plus. Um, but I am, I am still positive on it. Um, I, I do want to note I'm a little less positive than when I played it in 2020 just because... And, and I think this is something that new game plus runs in general suffer from is that there's not a lot of differentiality in between um, a first run and a second run. And for a game that like prides itself on having six characters and, and having a bunch of different paths that you can see, that that's really that's a huge hindrance, honestly. And that there are certain bosses that uh, Reese interacted with in her own way and like through her own taunts, uh, you see a lot of the same even if you have a different main character selected. Um, which is kind of a bummer. Um, and, and it's kind of inescapable in a way in that really you can only see two unique playthroughs in a way. And, and that's if you choose, uh, three entirely different characters on your first and second run. Uh, that is not what I am doing right now. Um, if I were to do that, I would have to the first run through I selected all of the three female characters. If I wanted to see the exact opposite playthrough essentially, I would have to select all three male characters, which is something I do plan on doing eventually. But I, I feel like as far as that goes, um, I'm kind of noticing the seams of the game a little bit right now in that like it's it's largely it's a good game. I do I do quite love it. But um, it's largely okay, you found item X, now go find item Y, now go find item Z, now go find item AA. And and that's all fine and good on your first playthrough because you're learning about the world, you're seeing the new story, uh, but when you're doing it a second time, it's just kind of ticking a box of, yeah, I, I'm doing this. I, I specifically noticed that this week in that um, on the map at all times, there is a star that is your destination, what you're going to be running towards for the vast majority of the time. Um, one of the dungeons that I remember taking quite a while, my first playthrough, I got through in like 20 minutes. Uh, and, and I do want to note, this new game plus does have a unique option in that you can either choose to, um, carry over the level from your previous character, uh, if, if you do select one that you have already used, or you can start from zero. I did start from zero as far as the character that I have used in the first run, um, but I, I'm still kind of... I wouldn't say I'm bulldozing enemies necessarily, but a lot of the fights that were challenging and tense the first time feel a little lackluster this time around. And again, I again do think that's just kind of a new game plus thing wherein um, you've done it once, you kind of you kind of feel the sense of tension. Um, I do think it's still a good game. Uh, one thing that is a little unfortunate is that. My items are kind of always capped at 99 just because I'm filthy rich. <laughs> there, there is never a issue for money or items for me. Uh, so that's, that's a little bit of a bummer. Um, the weird thing about that though is that they do still try to keep it tense in that if you're in a battle, they cap your item usage at 9 uses per item. So this, this did come into play when I was fighting one of the bosses, uh, Bill and Ben, which 
do a uh, Dragon Ball Z style fusion uh, to just one ninja uh, warrior that you have to fight, which is kind of an interesting battle. But um, because I because none of my characters now can do native healing, um, I have to rely on items, which very quickly drops those uh, items down to zero very quickly. Uh, this is this is a unique way to play because it is largely recommended to always have Charlotte on your team if if you want to be progressing. Charlotte is the game's white mage largely. Um, like throughout all of her trees, she can usually always learn white magic. Uh, again, none of my characters right now can do that, so it is it is a little bit more challenging. Um, the Bill and Ben boss fight was pretty okay. Uh, it did offer a decent amount of challenge, uh, even with Duran, who was doing more damage than either of the other characters I was playing as. Uh, it did do something that I had forgotten that it did, in that once you get the combined boss's health down to about half, they do split back up into separate Bill and separate Ben, and you do have to take them out at the same time. Uh, I did not remember that, so I had brought one down and was like, alright, the rest of this boss battle should be easy. Uh, I believe it's after like three-ish minutes, if you have not taken care of the other boss, they will revive their other boss with about like a quarter of their health, so that is actually kind of an interesting thing. Um, but yeah, just kind of hanging out in Trials of Mana again. It's I, I don't want to say it's a bad game. It's not. I do quite love it, but I'm definitely a little less positive on it now. And, and maybe that will change if I continue to play through this uh, run that I am doing right now. I mean, critically, like, it's it definitely got a more modest reception, so, like, I don't know. There, maybe, maybe you've just become a more uh, critical player uh, in the uh, time since it's worth noting about the game like it always confused me when you were talking about the remake firstly like i dislike the fact that this remake despite the fact that like it's pretty fundamentally a different game uh but it has the exact same title so so we have to we have to specify tri trials of Re mana the remake like there's no subtitle or anything like that right which uh that's that's the weird thing is that square has been kind of remaking um the mana series they did it with adventure of mana they put that on the vita and mobile phones that one is the worst of the bunch um they did secret of mana which depending on who you ask is a good remake or is just a straight up port with fancy phone visuals uh trials of mana remake i would say is probably the best of the three remakes that they've done because it is a brand new system uh I, I believe it kind of follows the Resident Evil 2 and 3 remake storytelling structure of trimming the fat a little bit and, and just getting to the point of a lot of stuff. Um, it's worth noting that I haven't played the original Trials of Mana too in-depth. That is a game that was only recently released in America, I think, I want to say 2019, uh, despite the fact that it is a SNES game. Um, so it does, I do believe that it does trim some of the fat there, uh, as well as adding, um, a couple new features in the post game, uh, that the post game I was overwhelmingly positive on, uh, in, in my time. I, I found that that to be some of the most fun that I had in the game. Uh, so I'm just kind of trying to get back to that because that had some really cool extra boss fights. The, the bosses of the game are definitely the best part, I think. Um, like I said, there was that fight with Bill and Ben, uh, there are eventually fights with what are kind of the, um, mana universes, uh, versions of gods, which are super cool. There was one that just, like, were, like, three phantom clown heads, that was really cool. 
Um, there was one boss area that you just kind of had to follow them along a path uh, that was just jumping between different um, floating rocks, floating islands, kind of. That was a super cool thing. Uh, but yeah, the general moment-to-moment -moment gameplay that isn't boss fights isn't necessarily always the best. Okay. Now, uh, how is the English dub? I've heard that it's not good oh, it's for this game. It's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, think, like, I think I sent you that clip where every, every time a Jessica rolls, she shouts, Eek! Uh, it's every time they never patch that. Oh, oh yeah, I I was going I was going to ask about that. I was like, which was the character that like you know you that that said eek every day? Like we were just having a random conversation about like I talked about like my general dislike of of characters uh, say, saying something without variation over and and you were just like bro and you sent me this. I was I was like oh my god every, like I, <laughs> every time she rolls every time yeah yeah I. I couldn't I couldn't put up, put up with that. It still it still gets to me that like this remake like removed multiplayer from the original uh Trials of Mana like considering how uh big an element that was. Like and it kept like the multi-person party but like uh but yeah there there's no multi like I mean I guess I sh I guess it's not a huge surprise like the Tales of series has been kind of on and off on that as well. Uh, like some 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 uh, tales of uh, games have multiplayer, but like some some just don't. But people still like the friend. I mean, like Tales of Arise, which is the latest and most acclaimed tale series so far. Like that didn't have any multiplayer in it. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, it it was weird. Um, I think part of it is because um, and and this is something that like Secret of Mana again. If the remake, depending on who you ask, it's either a nice, good game, or just kind of a weird reskin. It just still maintained the um, multiplayer. But that game was, like, commercially and critically not super hugely successful for Square Enix. Um, but they did have faith still in the Mana series. So when they came to Trial of Mana and the Trials of Mana remake, and they wanted to do something, they said, all right, we're starting from the ground up, making this all the way over, and... and that's one of the things that they stripped out is the multiplayer, which is, again, so weird because of how integral it was to the main game that uh, released on the SNES, how integral it was to Secret of Mana that released all those years ago as well. Um, it's, it's just completely gone, which I think part of it as well is because it would be weird to play uh, in, in like a couch co-op setting. Uh, it would be manageable online, but it's not a super in-depth game. Um, it's like, it, it is the two attack buttons. There's no, like, super in-depth combos. You can put enemies in the air, you can do airtime, but there's not a whole lot of DMC-style, like, comboing there. Um, it's, it's just, it's not a super in-depth game, so I can see why they didn't add co-op, but it is a sore lack. Yeah, I mean, I get it from the perspective that just, like, hey, like, that. It requires more time, and like, and you have to, particularly in a 3D game, you have to account for a lot of things. Like, are you like, is ever is are both players going to have a separate camera? Mm -hmm. Like, it's it's not trivial. I get it, but um, yeah, but uh, it's. I've always been wondering, like, if uh, we're. I mean, I guess. 
I guess the next game was Dawn of Mana, but I'm, I'm like, would would anybody care enough about Dawn of Mana for that to get remade? I, I watched uh, a video on Dawn of Mana, and I the only thing I remember about it, like the guy saying, is that it's serviceable, but it's not it's not amazing. And and it's worth noting that the last Mana game that we saw um, was a remaster of World of Mana for the PS1. So Square Enix is just, it seems to be completely skipping over Dawn of Mana, which is unfortunate because I feel like that one could use some some of the love and care that was given to the Trials of Mana remake. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if they're like, if they wanted to... <laughs> I mean, doing a bunch of remakes, that says to me, like, kind of trying to see, like, hey, like, what what about a completely new game? Uh, like, thinking radically here. Um, but, <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, Square Enix is, they have been all in on, like, just putting out as many games as possible, which I appreciate to a degree. But, yeah, like, def- definitely not all of them have been of equal quality and success. Yeah, no. I, I would hope that we haven't seen the last of the Mana world. Uh, the couple times that I've been in it, it's a fun time. I like the details that they have, um, but uh, only time will tell. I know that they have a mobile game upcoming. Um, who knows if that will be up to snuff. I know that they said they wanted to do a new game, um, but, you know, <laughs> there are a lot of things that the game industry says. <laughs> yeah. Until it's until it actually gets more concretely announced, we will have to wait and see. Mm-hmm. But for me, and what else has been lighting up my system, it's actually a couple games I want to note that I went over and visited with a friend that I got to play. And briefly, I'll detail one, which is Wii Sports Resort. And I love that game. This is basic. Yeah, th- this is basically Wii Sports done with like once they added in the Wii Motion Plus, which is like actual gyroscope. Uh, it's it's basically another take on Wii Sports. Like interestingly, like th- there's no sort of island mode or campaign or story in there at all. Like it is just the games. Uh, so I, I guess they decided that, that would be enough, and I I think this sold millions of copies. So I guess it did. But um, you know, playing the the ga- games that uh, games that we did. Like one was. Uh, uh, catch with a frisbee and a dog, and you have to throw a frisbee into a particular area. Uh, that, like, depending on like you know angle and like when you release the trigger to to let go of it, like it's actually surprisingly well done and uh, very very detailed. Uh, an- another game was the was archery and. Archery again, like you uh, pull the Wii Remote and the uh, nunchuck back, and uh, and and that uh, and that obviously like you'll uh, and aim and account for wind and all that, and that was a decent simulation of archery, like cons- considering everything uh, everything else in the game. Oh yeah, we we played a little little table tennis as well, which like you know again like I feel like the base table tennis was was decent, uh, but in this like it's much more detailed and like you know the 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 angle in which you're holding your paddle and like when you're striking back and uh, you know and you know so I was I was a little impressed by the 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 time we spent in. Uh, 
in Wii, Wii Motion Plus. I'm looking at it here, like, and apparently by the end of it all, it sold over 30 million copies for the Wii, so it was highly successful. That's that's not surprising. Like, Wii Sports was a huge hit. And I'm pretty sure in la- in later years, it was also a pack-in, like a replaced Wii Sports as the pack-in. Yeah, I, uh, I think I did hear that, mostly because, like, they, they want, like, not every game that they made was with the Wii Motion Plus accessory after that, but the games that they did uh, in make, they they wanted the most people to be able to um, use that accessory. Yeah. Yeah, I'm actually looking at it here, and uh, the Wii Family Edition, was, uh, it, it was the new, pa- new pack-in game. Uh, uh, it, and apparently, like, there, well, the Wii Sports and plus Wii Sports Resort, uh, since there are distinct games games on both, mm-hmm. but... Uh, and that was always a packing game. That that combination there. But yeah, like this was, I believe this was also this also, yeah, it, it came with the Wii, Wii Motion Plus. This, this this was the thing to sell the Wii Motion Plus to people. Yeah. Uh, so, but you know, it was it was decently well done. We only played those three games, but uh, I that was an example of of good good implementation of it. But uh, again, like the, those are. Just simulations of different sports and not uh, full games by by themselves, not conventional games. But the other game we've played was some R- Russian Attack, uh, the NES version of it, and it is a mid '80s Konami NES game based upon an arcade game, and I was. Uh, j- joking about how it was a simulation of the member of the uh, Ukrainian International Legion uh, attacking a missile silo in Russia, but uh, it uh, the setup is basically like you are a lone Green Beret and you are heading be- behind enemy lines in uh, in the Soviet Union and seeking to take out a missile in its silo. And uh, this lone Green Beret, he is so confident in his abilities. Uh, he's uh, he's like Solid Snake. He, he, like, you know, everything is uh, procurement on site. And so what that means is that your default weapon is a knife. <laughs> uh, uh, and... And it's very classically set up like a lot of arcade games of the time in that like uh, enemies will run on screen in a various pattern and generally they uh, most generic enemies come in one of three flavors. One just runs at you as quickly as possible. Another has enemies that will try and jump kick you. Uh, and the third sort of enemy will actually follow you and generally uh, shoot a gun as well. And uh, other enemies like basically just run from le- left to right and uh, and, it, and maybe attack if they're close to you, but like otherwise don't, don't follow you at all. It's a very basic setup, but like there's one control element of the game that definitely shows the age of the game and is in very few other games at least of this sort, 
Uh, in order to jump, uh, you ha you actually have to press uh, up on the D-pad uh, or up diagonally to jump over things. So like, there's no jump button. Uh, it is a matter of, uh, of pressing the diagonals up or up itself. So that is how you clear mines or sometimes jump over enemies or or ju jump attack in the case of any, uh, a jump kicking enemy. So that feels honestly a bit awkward to do. Uh, but part of the reason why you don't have jump on a button is because B is your regular knife attack, which you can use at all times. But like A, if you pick up any weapons, which include a RPG launcher, hand grenades, or even a gun, which grants unlimited shots for a very short period of time, you can press the B button and you will activate whatever that, that weapon is. Uh, and the weapons can be quite handy, like the blast radius of the grenade, like, is actually, it's larger than what the sprite would imply, and, uh, and most enemies go down in one hit, so, actually, I'm, I'm thinking of it right now, and it actually might be, like, all enemies go down in one hit, but so do you, uh, and you have five lives, and on top of that, you have five lives to make it through the five levels. But the thing is, there are five lives and there are no continues. So once you die, it is back to the beginning of the game. So it is quite challenging in that way. And as noted, like if you, if you make a single mistake, that is probably death for you. It's... Like I said, a, uh, a very, a very, de very decent challenge. Uh, though I, I like the strategic concerns of sometimes if you pick up a RPG launcher and if you duck and fire it, uh, it will actually explode mines along the ground as it goes. Uh, that can, you know, so that can be a handy strategic uh, consideration. RPG shots will also like basically pass through. Uh, like they don't explode upon hitting an enemy. Like they just pass through all enemies and and, and knock them out. Uh, one of the most cha challenging areas is in the second stage, where like you're having to deal with snipers in towers that are firing at you. And the biggest variability in the game is that like bullets will not always move at the same speed. Uh, sometimes they will move at a speed which is barely faster than your walk speed, and sometimes they will move twice as fast. That's just how bullets are in the game. So, having to deal with, like, again, like, the sniper towers, like, you can't get to them, so you basically just have to run past them while dealing with enemies on the ground. That's a decent challenge. Uh, there's a later level where you have to deal with a paratrooper who comes in firing his gun. That's a decent challenge. And that level ends with a, uh, as I noted my friend, like the ultimate enemy in the game, which is just uh, four paratroopers as the boss. Uh, since like paratroopers, like it's difficult to dodge their shots, and you of course like can't hit them until they uh, come they come down to the ground. That's kind of the weird thing in that, like, the stages are often harder than the bosses themselves, in my opinion. Uh, 
Like the in the second stage, you uh, are attacked by a bunch of German shepherds. But like the key to beating it is to just be is to just duck and attack in the direction that they're coming in. Like it's not hard. Uh, there's some auto gyros on the third stage that like they'll just kind of come in from the top and be tossing down grenades. And then like as soon as they come down, you can. Uh, you can jump and knock them out of the air. There's also some jetpack enemies at the end, end of the second stage. Those are actually kind of a pain just because of their random patterns of moving up and down and trying to get to them. And the final stage is you have to defeat certain enemies that will give you RPGs, and you'll have to basically use the RPGs on the, the rocket uh, in order to disable it. And uh, they, then you presumably save the world. It's a very uh, patriotic, jingoistic game, uh, even though it, it came from a Japanese studio. Like, at the end of every level, like, it, it plays a chord from the, uh, from the Song of the Marine Corps. Uh, you've definitely heard it before. It's, like, it's the one that goes from, uh, from, the, from the halls of Montezuma for, uh, to the shores of Tripoli. Well... Fighter, fighter countries, countries battle, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. that it was, it was honestly a fun little experience. But it is very much a product of its time. Uh, it is, it is definitely something that required all of my focus. But I, I, I enjoyed it in that way. It's just that, like, it can obviously get frustrating in the in the degree that, like, one mistake me, means death. And you can only make so so many mistakes, and then you just start the entire game over. Uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, that that does seem to be the way of the uh, old games. You you said this is a SNES game, right? This is an NES game. Okay, yeah, no, that yeah, those games are just out for your soul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. Uh, it definitely wants to kill you all the time. Uh, Probably not as much as the original arcade version, but it's still it's still a challenge. But yeah, it because the the patterns of the enemies themselves are not random in the, in the levels. Like there's there's some good memorization there. Like I said, you can always tell what an enemy is going to do based upon his outfit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is funny to see Soviets is uh, troopers and their entire outfits like coming up to you and trying to jump kick you. Uh, they're so confident in their but, abilities; uh, they don't even need a knife. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, I I do want to ask. I know that this isn't at all related to Metal Gear Solid, um, but just with the comment that you made that everything is cured on site, uh, Solid Snake, are are the boss battles like weird and super interesting, or are they just regular people doing cool stuff? They are just regular people. Like I said, they're, the first level is just like a legion of peop- guys coming at you, which of you have the RPG launcher completely trivializes. Second stage is people in jetpacks. Uh, actually, no, it's the dogs. Then it's the people in jetpacks. Then it's just a bunch of paratroopers. And then the gyroscopes, and I might be getting the order wrong on this, but all these are bosses. Then the final stage is just a bunch of people are coming at you while you're trying to get 
certain enemies to drop the RPG launcher so you can shoot that into the into the missile enough. There there like sadly there there is no extremely quirky final boss like nothing even like Metal Gear Solid 3 level of of quirky. But still like uh, it it is what it is. I mean like it there is no dialogue in the game to to really speak of. So it's just kind of a framework for the game. Uh, rather like you you know the stakes you know what you're doing and uh you know i enjoyed it i enjoy something that requires that level of of energy sometime and uh getting to know the game very intently so yeah that's that's fair uh i i guess i shouldn't be surprised that there aren't any like crazy cool bosses like metal gear solid but that's that's serviceable (laughs) yeah yeah I mean, it it is what it is what it is for the time. But like, I mean, like this game was definitely inspired by Rambo Part Two for uh, and I or should I say First Blood Part Two Part Two Rambo, uh, and I think and that series was also definitely an inspiration for Kojima as well. So uh, and they're both Konami games, though Kojima did not work on uh, the uh, on Russian Attack. But what else has been lighting up your system this week, Tuesday? Yeah, the other game that I've been playing, and I've been playing a lot of it just because it is uh, nice little bite-sized levels, uh, I acquired uh, Kirby in the Forgotten Land. Uh, I I didn't know that a game could give you cavities by being so sweet and adorable, Uh, but that's definitely Kirby in the Forgotten Land. (laughs) uh, I, I played the demo, and I talked a little bit about that. I... I've been blown away by this game, honestly, and, and I mentioned it before, I have not played any other Kirby game before this, so I don't have a frame of reference as to how they play or, or what they're like, but oh, this game is just so adorable and sweet. <laughs> the uh, the main goal of every level is to rescue Waddle Dees, uh, and those are done through various ways, little side quests, um, like each level has a little uh, predetermined thing that isn't necessarily revealed to you on the first playthrough. Um, that uh, you you can do to get another Waddle Dee unlocked. Um, but every time that you find a little Waddle Dee in the environment, there are usually either three or five hidden in a level. Kirby will get them out of the cage, they'll like uh, float in the sky a little bit, and then Kirby will turn to them and just smile with a gigantic smile and wave with both of his little arms. Oh, that's so cute. So wholesome. <laughs> um, but I like it. I like it a lot. I like the uh, levels that Like, so far, um, they have been kind of divided into, like, worlds, quote-unquote. It is not a open-world game, as uh, we discussed, as I theorized. Um, It is based on levels. Most of the levels are, like, three to five minutes. They're nice little bite-sized slivers of Kirby action, uh, which is nice and cool. Um, I like the variety of uh, submissions that the game has. Um, For example... Um, there was one level that, uh, I was in a sewer area and, um, it, it had a bunch of enemies in it, but like they, they incorporate the level design into it in that one of the ways to get a, uh, hidden Waddle D was to take off all of the wanted posters. So you had to look at each of the walls and like, see if there was like a little poster that had like a nice little crude, kind of a kid's drawing of Kirby 
with like a red X over it. And then you could like suck it up or you could use the cutter ability to like take it off. Um, it's, it's just a nice little charming detail uh, to just kind of like get you more immersed in the level, get you playing again. Uh, keep you coming back to it. There are some of the lo uh, little side missions that are kind of frustrating. Um, there was one level that was set on a racetrack, uh, which like to get uh, one of the hidden waddle Ds, you just had to beat it in like under a minute. Super easy, great. Uh, they did that kind of puzzle again to uh, get the hidden waddle D. You had to beat it in under. You had to do the race in under forty-five minutes or 45 seconds rather, not 45 minutes, <laughs> 45 seconds. Um, every time that I raced through that, I got a minute and 20 seconds and I was like drifting as much as possible. I was like cutting as many curves as I could. I was avoiding enemies. I was avoiding oil spills, everything. Uh, so yeah, it, it, it is definitely, um, frustrating at points that some of the waddle Dees are locked behind just ridiculously difficult things. Um, but it is very, I, I'm, I'm positive on the game. Again, there is, I didn't know a game could give you cavities, but it's definitely Kirby in the Forgotten Land. Uh, I talked about this a little bit when I mentioned the demo, is that it is definitely one of, at least in my eyes, uh, the most beautiful game that Nintendo has published on the Switch. And, and I definitely want to praise like the world that they built for it. Um, it is set on a forgotten planet that has been like kind of... Um, in a way, Kirby games are, like, about deep world issues, and, uh, occasionally you fight, like, god bosses that, like, devour universes and stuff like that. Uh, Kirby's surprisingly dark sometimes, <laughs> I guess. Um, this game is very clearly inspired by, uh, the world that we live in. The first, uh, set of missions is kind of exploring, like, a forgotten city, um, that culminates in a boss battle in a mall. Um, the next set of levels is set in like kind of a oceany area that has uh, areas that have trash in it, like um, shipping crates that are open and cut open and just you can go through, um, like not barbed wire but chain link fences. Um, one of the mouthful modes, which the level that I uh, remember most and enjoyed the most because of how interesting it was, um, there was a haunted house that um, you would, one of the mouthful modes was a light bulb that uh, you would suck up and the area was dark so you had to use the light bulb to illuminate the path. Um, at first I was like, oh, well this isn't challenging, I can just press and hold uh, the, the action button to keep the path illuminated. Eventually they added enemies that would be watching for you that couldn't see you in the dark, but every time you turned on the light bulb they would start coming towards you. And uh, if they hit you, they would obviously do some damage, but then they would knock you off the path as well. So it's a really cool way of using that power, because at first I was just like, well, it's it's useless. Why would I just not keep this on all the time? So they, they very clearly said, well, here's why you wouldn't keep it on all the time. I, I like that. It was a nice integration of this ability, and, and it was something that was more interesting than just, you know, shooting a projectile. Um, I did mention that in regards to the... Um, a vending machine mouthful mode that it's just there are other Kirby abilities that can shoot things um they the demo didn't uh didn't elaborate how useful the vending machine ability would be quite well um the full game obviously does there are certain walls that are cracked open that you can't break with just a copy ability you do need um some form of mouthful mode uh that might be a car to like speed through a wall or the vending machine to break the wall 
it's definitely a little bit more thought out than I originally thought. Um, so that's that at least kind of justifies that to be there. Um, the boss fights are still not amazing. Um, there was one boss fight that I uh, went through called her name was Claroline. Uh, she was a uh, like cat with just claws and would rush you and do slash attacks. Just kind of your generic cartoon cat. Um, that boss fight was kind of boring, honestly, in, in that, like, I brought in what was called the ranger ability, which is essentially to, like, guns. Kirby has a gun now. Um, <laughs> the, the last person I would trust with a gun, honestly. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and it was honestly just kind of avoiding her attacks and attacking when she was open. It wasn't any, like, as far as the game goes, you can't. It's not going to have like DMC style um, combo memorization or anything like that. Uh, but it was a little just bland in that way. Um, the thing that was interesting about it is that at one point she did climb up on like towers and like shoot out uh, claws at you that you could then suck up and get the um, sword ability. So there was a little bit of variation to that, but it wasn't super amazing. I think. I died the first time because I wasn't dodging all of her attacks, uh, but once I got into it and dodged all of her attacks, I beat it in under two minutes. So it wasn't super amazing. And, and I do get that this is like a children's game, but the boss fights are definitely a little bit lacking in that area. Um, but other than that, I do really enjoy the game. Um, the boss fights are the weak point, but uh, just the ability to go back into a level and do different um, objectives to get more Waddle Dees or just to like kind of explore what the developers made and play around with it. That's pretty fun. Uh, mouthful mode I, is, is a good idea. Um, there are some abilities that just are kind of boring uh, that could be done with copy abilities, but I do see the way that they integrated the puzzles so they're not always superfluous. Uh, sometimes they're just a little not as fun as I would have liked, but uh, I, I like it. It's it's a fun little game. It does definitely remind me of Super Mario 3D World. Uh, this is just like the Kirby variation of it, and I'm 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 good with that. Super Mario 3D World was a great game, so uh, yeah, Kirby in the Forgotten Land. I love it. It's just full of love, and Kirby is amazing. <laughs> That's funny that you're. Uh, coming in on this one, but like, I, I mean, Kirby games are structured. I mean, it's actually not unlike a lot of Mario games in that they're not really story driven or anything like that. Mm. So, like, you know, you can come in to the franchise in any one of them. Like, I mean, I, I talked about Star Allies a, a couple months ago. I played that, and that had a bunch of optional characters that you could add that were like references to previous Kirby games mm. so but like it's not like that it like that integrates into the story all that extensively extensively like it doesn't it doesn't really matter mm -hmm. basically uh, so <laughs> uh, I mean now is as good a time to come in as any and I know like this uh, this Kirby game has actually been well received. So, what are your thoughts on mouthful mode as a whole? As you've encountered, like, does it? Do you think like uh, it validates it as a separate thing from the usual copy abilities? Um, honestly, it's kind of a situational thing. Like, and and I, I guess in a way then that justifies its existence in that like not every puzzle can be solved with a copy ability. Fine, great. Um, but overall, they're somewhat shallow in a way and and that's not a bad thing 
Like I mentioned, with the light bulb and the pathfinding, that's a pretty cool idea, but definitely it's situationally useful. Like if uh, on the racetrack, like you're obviously going to be using the car to just speed through, and there and Nintendo did a good job in integrating um, the um, the HD rumble into making it feel a little bit more like you're controlling a car. Uh, in, in, in the control style and the boosting, that that definitely made it feel more like you're driving a car than just running. But you're not going to be using the light bulb mouthful mode on a racetrack. You're not going to be using the um, the vending machine uh, mouthful mode on the racetrack. They're definitely very situationally useful to the point that, like, you can take any copyability that's available to you into any level at any point. Um... As far as the mouthful modes go, they're definitely level by level doled out when the game needs them. Um, the one that is the most useful, I would say, um, would be the cone mouthful mode because it gives you the um, downward drill attack, which is which is the most combat useful ability. But it does limit your movement. It makes you move a little bit slower. Uh, it takes away completely all of the mouthful modes honestly actually do take away the hovering uh that kirby is able to do so you can't really um synergize that with your abilities but um it's it's fine i i think they integrated the puzzles well enough to justify it being there but it's nothing that is like an entire kirby game based around mouthful mode would would move millions and millions of copies um but i i think they did well enough with the situational puzzles to justify it being there. That's good. That's good. And how about the difficulty? I will just note that from, like... I mean, I've played a lot of Kirby games, by contrast to you. And, I mean, they varied from, like... Some are honestly very challenging. Mm -hmm. But, like, I would say a lot more recent ones. Like, I noted how in, like... Star Allies, like, we had, like, over 300, or, like, over 100 lives yeah. at the end. And it's, it's just, like, like that's way too easy. And, like, and definitely, like, but that's not the easiest Kirby game. The easiest Kirby game is definitely Kirby's Epic Yarn, yeah. which could have been really good, but you literally can't die. So... Yeah, to the point that uh, when that game was remade on 3DS, they had to put levels in where you can die. <laughs> yeah, they... I I describe that as baby difficulty. Yeah. Like if <laughs> yeah. Like I I and and so Kirby is in the entire spectrum of that. And like and I'm not a huge stickler for saying like oh man it has to be as intensely hard as possible, but like my take is like at least make me work for it mm -hmm. a little bit. Uh, so where where does Kirby and the Forgotten Land fall on that scale? Um, they they seem to be addressing that idea uh, quite well, honestly, in that um, there is, uh, I believe it's Spring Mode and Wild Mode. Um, I'm not sure on the easier difficulty name, honestly. Um, I, I believe it's Spring Mode. It gives you a little bit more health. It makes enemies go down quicker. Um, I am not playing on that mode. I am playing on wild mode, which is considered the um, normal difficulty. Um, the first world was relatively easy. The second world uh, was honestly just as easy. I am now in, I think, either the third or fourth world. It is offering a little bit of challenge. Um, enemies are more frequent. They do uh, get the drop on you a few times. So that can be a little bit challenging. Uh, from what I have heard, uh, the game is 
relatively easy with some areas that you just kind of have to like pay more attention to be a little bit more thoughtful um, until the end game which is where the game cranks up the difficulty um, what I think is nice about this game is that it does offer that kind of situational difficulty and depending on what waddle D's you want to get uh, that is really where the difficulty is going to shine like based on um, having to find all the wanted posters or having to uh, find all the enemies that you have to take out or having to uh, in explore the environment and like avoid um, obstacles and jumping puzzles and stuff like that. So I think it, it balances out that difficulty in that it's as hard as you want it to be. Yeah, okay, that's fair. Well, uh, and it's good to have that level of uh, variable difficulty. And I would actually say that's very indicative of a lot of uh, 3D Mario games, yeah. frankly. Like, if they'll have, uh, like, if you want to, like, just get to the end, most Mario games or 3D Mario games are not that not that difficult. But, like, if you want to, like, get every star, then, like, you're going to have to undergo some very challenging things. Star or shine or moon or whatever, because there, there are just some extremely difficult uh uh, things that you have to get but like they're not required yeah so uh yeah that's that's the way with the waddle d's in this game that's fair and and so there's are very much the the stars of this game yep. like the things you're collecting yeah. okay <laughs> okay well so switching over from kirby which i mean could have been announced at an uh e3 I think it got I think it got some coverage last year. Yeah, I believe that's correct. But anyways, nothing will get any coverage of at this year's E3 because this year's E3 won't exist in any form. What? The Yeah, the ESA has confirmed that in addition to ca canceling the in-person event, which is honestly the more relevant thing, like the digital event has also been canceled. Uh, this is reported by IGN and other sources. ESA provided this statement. We will devote all our energy and resources to delivering a revitalized physical and digital E3 experience next summer. Whether enjoyed from the shore floor or your favorite devices, the 2023 showcase will bring the community, media, and industry back together in an all-new format, format and interactive experience. We look forward to presenting E3 to fans around the world live from Los Angeles in 2023. So, this is the second time in three years that it's been completely canceled. They had a digital-only event last year. The ESA is clearly still just trying to put all of its ducks in an order when it comes to, frankly, just realizing what this new image of the of e3 is going to be like they've had to deal with a lot of people leaving like ea isn't there sony isn't there uh and i know like their vision like which was all like pre-pandemic was all about like kind of making it into an event for fans to come out to uh, an event that, like, not a lot of publishers were down for, like, or also, like, especially an influencer-focused thing, as opposed to a media or trade show focus, and that's also another thing that a lot of people are reluctant to buy into, so it's going to be interesting to see, like, what form this will finally take. I just know that, like, the ESA, it lost the confidence of a lot of journalists, certainly, when they basically doxed a lot of them, uh... Uh, however, accidentally a few years ago, you might have, you might remember that, like just posting people's information online on their website. 
but yeah, I I think E3 is dangerously running close to like with it having been just out of focus for so long, like just something else taking its place or like people realizing that like, Hey, we can just do intermittent updates on things. Like we don't, we don't need to have this big one trade show to show off games anymore. Like, in fact, like that probably creates some problems, like with just some smaller games trying to get, uh, attention. Like it's like we noted in the, uh, future of game conferences, uh, discussion we had, like it's only, helpful for smaller games like in an actual physical environment like if everything's there but like in a digital environment it's like who cares like uh that announcements are coming at the same time i i do actually think that hurts certain smaller to, to mid-sized games because everybody's going to be talking about the biggest games frankly yeah so yeah and and it is uh funny that you mentioned that we talked about this in our topic on this um i am wondering um and, and maybe this is a question for a uh, different thing, but is, is the ESA going to run out of money? Like, uh, uh, like, can they sustain if they have to keep canceling events? Or, or like, because I feel like, you know, promising, oh, yeah, 2023. I, I assume that by that time, COVID will be, like, calm enough for things to happen again. You know, it'll, unfortunately, kind of be a flu season kind of thing. Um, but uh, are they going to be able to? <laughs> It's a very good question. They get a lot of money from E3, and not holding it is not good for their organization. So I don't even know. Like, mm-hmm. we're, we're just going to have to see. We will cover that, of course, like as, an, as announcements come out. They're definitely going to try. Yeah. So, so up or down, succeed or fail, we will know. Yeah. But uh, now speaking of another thing that is not coming uh, in 2022... Uh, Breath of the Wild 2. <laughs> yeah, this week, Eiji Aonuma uh, was featured in a video posted directly to Nintendo's YouTube channel, uh, just kind of updating people on the status of Breath of the Wild. Uh, he says, I have an update to share on the launch timing of our sequel to Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Um, we were previously announced that we were aiming for a 2022 release of the game. However, we have decided to extend our development time a bit to spring 2023. Uh, obviously, uh, this is not this is not really a surprise to anyone who has been paying attention. Um, but uh, this this is kind of a clear notice that all right, yeah, we're we've got a lot to still see. Um, it is worth noting they did include a little bit of gameplay for uh, the game, like 10 seconds, honestly, so not enough to even really talk about in, in like a full-on YouTube video for anyone to analyze. <laughs> there, there was some like gameplay of what looks to be a lot more flight uh, involved in the game. People are um, now guessing that there will be islands in the sky to explore from time to time as well as a uh, beaten up and messed up master sword so there's definitely something that uh, is going on there um but yeah uh it, this is this is interesting because uh in in the previous months we have talked a little bit about how elden ring has been the um kind of biggest game this year uh and we had talked about how the only thing that could compete with it is breath of the wild 2 uh i i think this week uh, just uh, basically announced Game of the Year <laughs> as Elden Ring. Yeah, th- yeah, there's, like, 
I feel like this decisively makes Elden Ring into like a consensus game of the year pick. Like it's it's going to hold in people's imagination throughout the year. I, that can sometimes be a problem for certain games that release earlier in the year, but I I don't see anything knocking it off that perch. So like yeah, like that element. Like and it it definitely like for other developers who might care about this sort of thing. Like about how like okay like in 2022 is going to be just a buzzsaw between Breath of the Wild two and Elden Ring but like but next year will be okay but like now that Breath of the Wild 2 is coming out next year like it's just like well like that considering the acclaim around Breath of the Wild like one of the best reviewed uh it might be the best reviewed game on Switch uh I I don't have that that information offhand but it has also sold over 25 million copies so like I mean because of that there was in in addition to that like a uh, a slight slump in the stock of Nintendo in Tokyo, like by six percent after this came out. But I do just want to say, like, like they're going to be fine. Yeah. Like this isn't like th- that's just a temporary thing. Like just basically saying, like, okay, like for the short term, they might have to uh, change some reports for like quarterly, but not even for the year. Like they said for next March. So. They will be completely fine. Yeah. According to um, multiple sources, including CNN, uh, CNET, uh, Breath of the Wild is the best Nintendo Switch game, which uh, it is a launch game. So <laughs> yeah. that that says yeah. a lot about uh, what Breath of the Wild is. And, and um, I, I think Nintendo knows that as well. We talked about it a little bit. They don't want Breath of the Wild 2 to come out and be a slump. They, they don't want that game to be... Oh, it's not as good. They and and I I feel like I don't know if this is an intentional decision uh because of Elden Ring. I don't think it is. Like I I feel like Nintendo knows what they're boxing with. They they know their punching power. Um I definitely feel like this because realistically, we only ever got a um 2022 blanket date before we got soon, before we got eventually. Um, now what I, what I see is that with this spring 2023, we are narrowing down to a release date, um, maybe not within the year, probably in spring. I, I, I would say that we likely will know the release date this time, 365 days from now. Um, but yeah, this, this is really the first delay of the game the first official delay because before nintendo had only ever said it will be coming this this is the first time that it had a set release area and now it's being pushed back um so i i don't think this is because of elden ring i definitely think it's that nintendo knows what they're doing they know what they need to do and they don't want the game to be underdeveloped i i don't think (laughs) every company talks about like not considering the competition which i think is to varying degrees of true but for nintendo i absolutely believe that they are not looking at the competition most of the time so uh like they're like even to the degree of like you know like i wouldn't surprise if like if you asked miyamoto about elden ring he'd be like you know what's that uh what's 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 old ring uh, what what is this game old ring (laughs) and uh and uh What's the PlayStation up to for now? Uh, but anyways, I thought we were uh, still on PlayStation One. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like uh, they have plenty of games set for the coming year, including uh, 
Xenoblade Three, Xenoblade Chronicles Three, Splatoon Three. I don't blame you. I don't blame you for that. Like the Splatoon Three, along with a new Pokemon title set to release this year. So most likely, eventually, Advance Wars, please. Yeah, we'll 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 see about that. Like things are very touch up going with that i i get the sense that it's done and it just had the worst timing ever to uh in its in its, in its release but yeah um but but yeah the uh the year is is looking pretty good for nintendo i like i said they i mean they've sold gangbusters during the holidays the switch has like even with honestly a very poor holiday lineup mm-hmm. so like uh there's all that there's also bayonetta 3 coming out like uh, nintendo can count count for count to three like if you look at Xenoblade xeno blade chronicles splatoon and bayonetta yeah, so yeah. uh so take take that valve uh <laughs> but uh the so yeah, like they'll be fine. Like Nintendo, I mean, they're infamous for taking their time, but I feel like that is especially true when it comes to uh, Zelda, which is their ultimate prestige franchise. Mm-hmm. Uh, like they they have been like even before it was really invoked to be delaying games, like they had delayed Zelda games a lot. Like uh, I remember Twilight Princess got delayed so much, like that it became a Wii launch title. I think part of that was also a business consideration. Frankly, yeah. uh, they wanted they wanted people to get uh, the Wii to play. Like it actually like launched on switch before or no, switch it actually launched on wii before it launched on gamecube mm-hmm. uh which was like there was a two-week delay that was totally a like hey you want to play it right now yeah. uh yeah. get the new system but uh and then also like it, the breath of the wild was also delayed a lot coming to uh, uh coming to the wii u uh, until the point where like you know that became a uh, launch title for the switch and as noted like you know still five years later the best received switch title yeah. and like and now because of this delay people are saying like oh my gosh is this going to be like a switch to launch game and my response to that is no i'm so no, glad not. you mentioned uh, that i wanted to say yeah no we're still <laughs> we are this is uh, as far as i am aware this is the middle of the switch life cycle i don't see like yeah, this yeah. being you know i if anything i see metroid prime 4 being a switch to title uh, I don't see Breath of the Wild two being a Switch yeah. title. Yeah, it could it could be it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, we certainly haven't seen anything of that game. Yeah. So, but uh, but but yeah, like this this game, it's still coming too soon. And it also says to me that like they know the parameters that they're working on the game that they're giving like a specific release window. They're just like okay, like it, like if you give us like a few or more more months, then we can be sure to deliver on the level of polish that we want on this game. They know the parameters of the game. They kind of know like how like they they've discovered the game at this point. It's just a matter of like making the game, polishing the game, and making the game everything it wants to be. And like and uh, and obviously like you know again like this is a prestige game. I don't honestly think that Nintendo puts out a bunch of games that I would consider really prestige games in this way. But like the mainline Zelda games are definitely that. Yeah. So uh, and they and they want to make sure and they want to make sure it hits and. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm quite confident that it will, uh, it will hit in the way it needs to. Uh, well, as, as much as I can with like having, having only seen as much as anybody outside of, uh, the, uh, Kyoto studio studios and Nintendo has, but yeah, you know, I'm, I, I'm, uh, I'm fairly certain it will satisfy me. Yeah. I, I am not worried at all about breath of the wild two either. I, it, it will be fine. It will take time. 
it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, so cool your dress, everybody. Yeah. But, but speaking, switching over to the Sony half, they announced the very long-rumored PlayStation Plus tiers, uh, and a lot of the rumors turned out to be essentially true. But to let, run down what it is, there are going to be three tiers of PlayStation Plus, and it basically integrates PlayStation Now into PlayStation Plus, which is frankly something that makes sense. Like there were at one point in time, like there were these two tiers of things that you could sign up for, and I feel like nowadays, like particularly when it comes to what Nintendo and Microsoft are offering, like it just makes sense to like combine those. Uh, and there are three different levels. Start off with the base level, which is PlayStation Plus Essential. This is essentially the equivalent of what existing PlayStation Plus measure, uh, members have, uh, and includes two monthly downloadable games, online multiplayer access, cloud storage, and exclusive discounts. Uh, and I mean, there's. We live in America, so we're only going to give uh, price, prices for for America. But um, uh, ten dollars monthly, twenty five quarterly, or fifty year, yearly. Uh, if you have PlayStation Plus remaining, it's going to roll over into PlayStation Plus Essential when this service launches in June. Uh, then there's PlayStation Plus Extra. Uh, it adds a catalog of four hundred PlayStation Four and PlayStation Five games. Uh, the, this also includes six, six games which have been confirmed uh, and far, fairly relevant. Uh, and they they are Death Stranding, God of War, Marvel Spider-Man, Miles Morales, Mortal Kombat 11, and Returnal. Those will be on there. None of the other 400 or so, so games have been confirmed, but... That will be $15 monthly, $40 quarterly, or $100 yearly there. And then the final tier, PlayStation Plus Premium, and of course, like all the enhanced tiers have all of the benefits of the previous tiers. It adds a uh, 340 additional games uh, for streaming and download from the PlayStation 1, PlayStation 2, and PlayStation Portable, I should add. PlayStation 3 games will just be available via cloud streaming, and it will also offer uh, streaming access for PlayStation 4 games as well. And this can be done to on PlayStation 4, PlayStation 5, and PC. It will also have limited-time game trials, so certain games can be tried before they are purchased. This will be... $20 monthly, or is uh, $18 monthly, excuse me, uh, for, uh, $499 quarterly, or $119.99 yearly. So this is the long-rumored uh, competitor to Game Pass, or at least they're equivalent to that. Uh, worth noting, Jim Ryan... CEO of PlayStation in a interview with Games Industry Biz uh, talked about like when asked about like basically the idea that like Game Pass has uh, games day day one and uh, like all like all of Microsoft games are uh, there on day day one but this this is not 
And he put it in context saying, as you well know, this is not a road we've gone down in the past. It's not a road we're going to uh, we're going to go down with a due service. We feel if we do that with the games we make at PlayStation Studios, the virtual cycle will be broken. Level of investment that we need to make our studios would not be possible. And we think the knock-on effect with quality of the games that we make would not be something that gamers want. So... Uh, not too surprising that uh, that this is still the perspective. Uh, I mean, like, it's actually only Microsoft that's really gone out there and given away their games with uh, Game Pass on day one. It certainly made the uh, Game Pass more appealing, but, like, it also... I mean, like, you're going to be selling less of those games that way, and, uh, and Microsoft, I suppose, can afford to take the financial hit from that. But... Uh, but but PlayStation would choose not to, uh, especially since there aren't other elements of Sony's business that are there to make up the uh, profit in the in the short term. Analysts uh, reacting to it, including Michael Michael Goodman of Strategy Analytics, said it was long overdue combining these two products because that's where the uh, the uh, market is today. Uh, at, uh, noting adding in hundreds of games, integrating the online part, and cutting the price, it greatly enhances the value. Because that is a key thing. Is like, is now by itself was was a ten dollar a month uh, at its base. So now like this combined value is uh, co- cost less per month. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a smart business decision to combine these two services. Um, it it it's nicer for the consumer. It definitely offers that kind of uh, up tier if, if you want more. Uh, I personally don't know that I, I think that it's the best value, but I, I do think that it is a good idea to combine that. That way, as far as consumerism goes, you're only getting one charge in a month, uh, you know, and you know what day that's hitting, assuming if, if you're going by the monthly um, thing. It's, you know, I... I, I guess it's okay. I I'll have to see what kind of games are are the PS One games because because that really does make or break it. You know, if if we're talking Silent Hill, Ape Escape, Metal Gear Solid, those are some games that really could be there. Um, if it's just a bunch of random games, you know, Disney's Toy Story, uh, Spec Ops, you know, it's it's not something. It's really dependent on what the lineup is. Yeah, I, I completely agree, uh, and I think like uh, Piers Harding rules at Ampere Analysts. Uh, he said like he he doesn't think it'll have the pull of Microsoft's service Game Pass, where I think Sony will try to be more aggressive is windowing uh, release, uh, windowing between the release of new games and added to the service, uh, and when new releases from third party and developers come on there as well. Uh, Goodman, as uh, noted before, strategy analytics uh, added after noting that the market will decide. Uh, there's huge growth potential since, like, currently PlayStation Now is just used by 5% of Sony's uh, install base, whereas Game Pass is over 40%. Uh, saying that 40% of the install base is the benchmark, but even if they get to 20 or even 15%, I would make the argument that it's been really successful. Maybe not by comparison, but certainly from a revenue perspective. And yeah, to to your point, like 
this is one of those like you know well we'll have to see more details of it like i'm like i'm curious about it but like uh i and again like it kind of comes down to like you know what sort of sales are they gonna uh offer on top of this because like i'm also like i'm really a hawk like for looking for regular playstation plus being added uh like offered it as a discount as and as you know famously last year uh, we both went in for PlayStation and now for a month mm-hmm. when like that was just that was discounted, uh, like and I and I was fi- fine with that for that for that price for 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 that month. Like it, it actually like happened concurrently. Like I got the uh, I got the trial and then like I, I bought the month. So for two months there, I was furiously playing a bunch of PlayStation Now games. Uh, but I'm just like you know you know service like you know it's not bad. Like it could definitely be improved, and uh, and I think in this like we'll have to see um how uh, like what games they offer in, partic- in particularly at what time like you know that will dictate like how good a deal this is and whether i am going to s- sign up for it basically uh exactly exactly well we have an eye out for that activision blizzard i mean a lot of stuff happened with activision blizzard again this week <laughs> you know no. i don't know how to put it any other way like uh why don't you you talk about the uh? Why don't you talk about the settlement? Uh, and by the way, you you don't you don't have to include the the quote by by Bobby Kotick that's in there. Oh yeah, no, I I don't want any of his words in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> um, but NPR is reporting that a judge has approved Activision Blizzard's eighteen million dollar settlement in a sexual harassment suit. A California judge says she will approve the settlement between the video game giant Activision Blizzard and the U.S. Equal Opportunity Commission. The case stems from a complaint the federal agency listed filed in September after a years-long investigation alleging that employees at Activision Blizzard were subjected to severe sexual harassment and pregnancy discrimination and that the company engaged in retaliation against employees who complained. The settlement includes an $18 million fund for eligible claimants who worked at the company starting in September 1st of 2016. Uh, The uh, EEOC lawsuit is just one that the company has faced recently for its alleged toxic workplace behavior. Uh, Shenanigans. This is stupid. (laughs) Like, I, 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 I get this is the way that our justice system works, but it's not satisfying. Like, like there's no, no it's really now. And there's also, especially like a lot of people criticize this as like not being enough money, like relevant to like what's being accused. So like it's, uh, but of course, like it is, it is only one of many, but yeah, like it is, uh, it is unsatisfactory in certainly a lot of ways. Um, but uh, regular business is supposedly still being done, including like with, uh, Activision owned Beanox Studio. Yeah, Beanox is opening a new studio in Montreal, according to Games Industry Biz. Uh, the Activision owned studio Beanox is opening a second office in Montreal, Canada. The studio, which supports development of the Call of Duty series, aims to expand its footprint in the city by increasing its staff count by 20%. The new office will be overseen by Beanox studio head Nior Ponoy. And its exact location will be announced in the upcoming months. The investment in Montreal is the next key step in our studio's growth as we continue to support the creative ambitions across the Call of Duty franchise. We want our location to be to attract local and international talent and contribute to the vibrant game video game industry in Montreal. Um, that's fine. 
I'm bummed because Beanox is like with every Activision studio now is just a Call of Duty factory. Do you remember the days that Beanox made those really cool Transformers games? Yeah, yeah, I, I, re- I remember that. They were also the Spider-Man studio for yeah, a while. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh-huh. What a bummer for like that. And, and I mean, <laughs> I guess, you know, talent moves on, talent disperses elsewhere. But like, man, that that just sucks. Those were those are some really cool games. And now it's just a Call of Duty factory. Like, like, I mean, I'm not upset that they are creating jobs for the industry. That's a good thing. But man, what what a like waste of talent! Like in in a way, I feel like Activision is kind of becoming the um, McDonald's, if you will, of of video game companies. In that it's a starter for everyone. It's something you put on the resume. Like and and that's <laughs> such a bummer. Be because you know B Nox did make some really cool games. Like great to expand the um you know availability of jobs. But oh man, did it have to be this company? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, notably in Montreal, like a place that there's a lot of uh, task credits in. Like, I don't think Activision Blizzard is going to be looking to open up any new studios in California, which has been their traditional base. Yeah. But, um, but besides all that, they wish we could end on good news, but instead, uh, some. S- s- the merger with Microsoft has caught the attention of certain United States senators. Yeah, this is... Man, when we started this podcast, I didn't think we would see the ups and downs of the wild world of Activision Blizzard. Um, but uh, no. earlier this year, obviously, there was the move from Microsoft to purchase Activision Blizzard. Uh, now, a letter that was sent by Senator Elizabeth Warren... Uh, Bernie Sanders, Cory Booker, and Sheldon Whitehouse, all notable Democrats, each uh, coming from different states, um, has re- reads that they are very deeply concerned about the consolidation in the tech industry and its impact on workers in regards to the Microsoft uh, Activision Blizzard merger. Uh, these four senators are um, urging for a review of the deal, um, stating that this could undermine calls for accountability at in the video game giant, obviously, um, there there is that fear that once Activision Blizzard is under Microsoft's wing, that all of the weirdness that happened last year will once again go quiet and just be kind of flushed out and normalized. But also, there is the uh, concern that uh, that that will run up against um, competitive nature in in the market, which uh, you know is another thing. Uh, right now, we have not heard any comment from the FTC. This is a relatively new letter coming at the end of March, the last day of March. Um, so we, we are still waiting to hear uh, what they are saying. Uh, it is notable that uh, this deal does need to be reviewed before it can go through. So it, it, it is not a done deal. And, and every time we hear something new, I feel like that shifts the balance of this is going to happen to, well, let's see now. Yeah, this definitely <laughs> adds some weight to the whole, like, you know, eh, maybe the deal is in a little bit of peril, like, not just, like, from the potential antitrust factors, but, like, now just the fact that, as we pointed out multiple times, it does kind of feel like it's creating cover to, for, like, Kodak to uh, escape and po- potentially reap a windfall, like, they 
a Kodak representative basically said that it's going to be good for ever for everybody like i love the verbiage they like a compelling offering for both their employees and every i was, I was just like what does that even mean uh like the, but i mean it's a most compelling offering like for the major shareholders of which Kodak is i think the biggest uh at least among individuals but like yeah uh, I mean, every every uh, to put it simply, I think I agree with like almost every relevant point that they've uh, brought up. Like sometimes political figures that will come on, on the gaming industry, I feel like they'll have kind of a not whole impression of what's going on. Like they don't understand the industry or the major players or how it works. But th in this case, I actually feel like they have mostly the right of it. Yeah, yeah. This I I am glad that and and I mean. These specific senators, I, I commented this to you, uh, I'm both surprised and unsurprised that this is being talked about. Surprised because, you know, this is the gaming industry. This isn't this isn't real big people news. <laughs> um, but unsurprised <laughs> in that it's these senators who have been very, um, very critical of uh, big money movement and uh, corporations uh acting unfairly to workers so this is definitely this is definitely an interesting shift in the situation yeah yeah i would i would agree like and yeah to your point about like the senators coming on it like not a not a huge surprise but like the fact that like it wasn't just one senator uh like the fact that there was it was an actual group of them like that says to me that like it is it has come to the attention of uh of like uh, multiples obviously but like if the, if that's a thing that like you know okay like it doesn't take too, too many rumblings for the like you know like hey like why don't we have our have a hearing about this like uh which like even if there isn't legal pressure like you know there's a lot of pr pressure around that because uh if that hearing happens in in, in public then like bobby Kotick might have to just you know sit in front of members of a senate panel and and, and answer questions and i'm sure he wouldn't want to do that Oh no! But we uh, want him to do that. <laughs> I, I would be. Uh, that that would that would possibly make my day. Even even week. Who knows? Oh, uh, that would just be <laughs> delicious. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, our our fantasies aside of watching Bobby Kotick uh, get get grilled, uh, it's it's relevant to this week's topic. But before we get in there. Why don't we venture into the hype corner since Tuesday did have multiple date confirmations and game game announcements this week that they were hyped about. Yes, uh, this week, um, actually also on the last day of March, um, New Game Plus was a uh, stream that occurred. Uh, it was kind of a... It was somewhat of a Nintendo Direct for indie developers, let's say, <laughs> in yeah. that uh, we saw announcements from NIS America, um, Inti Creates, uh, other smaller developers as well, uh, and specifically I am pulling out four um, announcements that have excited me. Um, I will go from... Uh, I'll, I'll build in the hype, shall, shall we say. Uh, the first okay. one is um, that a PS2 stealth action game, Kami Kamiwaza, yeah, Kamiwaza, Way of the Thief, uh, was a PS2 action game and is now being remastered um, for PlayStation 4, uh, Nintendo Switch, and PC. 
Uh, it was originally released in 2006 for the PlayStation 2, and it was only released in Japan, but it is now announced to be getting a remaster. It will be launching worldwide in the fall. Uh, some of the features are swiftly steal merchandise displayed on inside shops with elegance, break into vaults and warehouses to rob them, pickpocket valuables from under other people's noses, and even steal kimonos from town girls. What an exciting adventure. <laughs> um, oh, this... <laughs> I rate I rate that game uh, Tuesday out of ten. It's made by Acquire. <laughs> yes. uh, po- yeah. Poss- possibly the most most Tuesday of game studios. Uh, I I am it's a, it's, very excited. It's up there. <laughs> um, this uh, I I don't believe this game is at all attached to the way of the Samurai series, uh, but it definitely has that uh, mid two thousands feel to it. Mid two thousands low budget game. Uh, that oh I, yeah. I adore. <laughs> Um, next up, we also got a release date for a game that I earlier commented on was announced. Samurai Bringer, a um, roguelite action game, uh, is arriving on April 21st. The publisher Playism and developer Alpha Wing announced. Uh, we did uh, get a little nice new trailer showing a little bit more of the gameplay. Uh, it's a cute little game. Um, I'll definitely be looking for reviews to that. Uh, it has highlights of over 100 legend, legendary Japanese warriors uh, with different weapons that you can equip, as well as different armor sets. Uh, you play as Suzano, who uh, died almost, but then the um, Japanese sun god, um, sun goddess Amaterasu uh, brought him back in order to uh, bring him back to his former glory and inevitably take down uh, evil Japanese spirits. So that's exciting as well. Uh, long-time fans of the show will know that I love roguey stuff, uh, stuff that I can just sit down, play for an extended period of time, turn the brain off, and go for it. That's very exciting as well. Yep. <laughs> the next thing that we saw was, uh, <laughs> was, um, Azure Striker Gunvolt 3 getting a July release date, uh, as well as new details in a trailer. This is the newest game in the Gunvolt series after um, Luminous Avenger X2, which I hated. <laughs> so I'm I'm nervous, but I, I am excited. Uh, it is described as a satisfying swordplay meets light speed superpowers. Uh, it stars the new character Kieran with a skilled who is skilled with blades, uh, focusing on quick sword fighting and throwing enchanted talismans to weaken enemies. A very Japanese-style character. Um, there is also Gunvolt returning. Um, Gunvolt brings new show-stopping Voltic arts, uh, ripping through enemies with his spark dash or lightning assault. Uh, we did see a new trailer, some nice new actions there. Um, they did say that um, there is a story mode plus, uh, which will uh, feature real-time um, story mode action. Uh, what that means just yet, we do not know. I am assuming that it will be similar to uh, Mega Man X, where in uh, different stages interact differently depending on the bosses that you fought. That is exciting as well. But the crown jewel for me from this uh, presentation was Pocky and Rocky Reshrined getting a release date. Uh, it is coming a few months later than uh, the Japanese release. Uh, it is coming April 21st in Japan, but we got a release date of June 24th for um, this game to come out in the West. Uh, I am very excited for that. It is getting both a physical and digital release. 
this is probably a game I'm getting physically. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm nervous about that, though, because it is coming from Limited Run Games, which they do produce great quality um, uh, limited edition games, but they do come quite a few months after the release date of the game. Uh, so going back and forth on that, but that is something that I have been excited about for a long time. Uh, very excited to see more of that game and just eventually get my hands on it in June. A uh, couple questions. Like, firstly, uh, what's your level of concern over uh, Azure Striker Three uh, being a run it back game from Integrates? I'm pretty uh, nervous. I'm pretty nervous. Because okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my because my because because my uh, run it back like alarms are just are just flashing like wild, mm -hmm. uh, and I hope I'm wrong. I, I do too. Uh, um, I, I really do hope that both of us are wrong on that. I, I know as far as the Gunvolt games go, uh, my personal favorite is the second game. They have a lot of really cool things that they did in there, but having played X and uh, having seen how they handle like up up close and personal melee styles, man, was that game boring. Um, I, I, I am encouraged because they do have the two playable characters. Um, so maybe Gunvolt will uh, save that, but ooh, very concerned, very concerned. I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna wait a couple yeah. weeks. <laughs> yeah, we we shall see. And the other thing, like when it comes to Pucking Copy, uh, Pucking and Rocky, uh, Reshrined, like is like you, you realize it's fundamentally like a, a run and gun shooter, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. How That's why I want it. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Just as lo just as long as you're fully aware, like in like since you were talking in terms of like top down, and I have to uh, say it over and over again until like maybe one day we'll take that that top down is not a genre. It's uh, a genre but... to me. <laughs> <laughs> the most Tuesday genre of all is just like oh it's it's top down it's great like you know yeah it goes from like you know. Uh, from the you know the original mana games to like uh to po pocking and rocky to like those contra stages that you're you're top down like all, all basically the same thing yeah but, yeah if if, um, if konami ripped out all those top down stages and just put it in one game top down game game of the year <laughs> just, there you go I, th I think that was neo contra like there was uh i do have neo contra. <laughs> there's a lot of yeah, it's a very yeah, it's a very it's a very like not not the best contra, it is uh, not but the best contra. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I, I have never heard anybody make serious arguments for neo contra, but anyways, okay. So to again return to our thing that we teased earlier about Activision, which like you're gonna hear that name come up quite a bit in this, and I wanna and I wanna assure you, like it's actually mostly a coincidence. But <laughs> anyways, the t the topic this week deals with labor disputes in the U.S. game industry, and uh, it, it's relevant because of the situation that's happening at Raven, which is part of Activision. But I'm going to start off with just talking about the general history of it in the U.S. industry. And I don't want to pretend this is, like, exhaustive or anything like this, but here are the biggest points, at least as far as I can determine. Now, video games are a young medium, so the history in the U.S. is just as youthful. It's worth noting a moment in labor that happened when the industry was still in its nonsense. In 1981, the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization, or PATCO, Stri striking for shorter hours and better pay. 
President Ronald Reagan, despite having supported PATCO's effort in his 1980 campaign, invoked the Taft-Hartley Act and ordered them back to work and threatened those who did not return with termination in 48 hours. Reagan made good on his promise and fired over 11,000 air traffic controllers and then took the extra step of banning them from federal service for life. Worth noting that President Clinton lifted that in, in 1993. This was a turning point and a signal to, to corporations, however, to hire strike replacements rather than negotiating in labor conflicts. While there were hundreds of strikes and lockouts in the de decades preceding this, the rate had dropped from nearly 400 in, in 1970 to less than 200 in 1980, and there were fewer than 20 in 1999, and by 2010, there were fewer than a dozen. So this was the environment in which the game industry was birthed. There's also a few other notable factors. Firstly, video games are an offshoot of the white-collar computer industry in America, which, unlike entertainment fields, do not have a history of labor organization. Secondly, unlike movies or TV shows at the time, video games were made by relatively small teams, and sometimes even by one person in the early days. Labor organization typically follows set duties in a large organization. If duties are more fluid in a small group, then unionization is less likely. One of the few really contentious areas when it comes to game developers is recognition in the credits. Atari, after it was acquired by Warner Media, and this was the original Atari, didn't want to give credit to its game developers, so they couldn't be poached by competitors. Uh, and this also made the developer's bargaining position weaker. This resulted in the seminal game Adventure famously having an Easter egg in a hidden room that read, Created by Warren Robinette. He was protesting the lack of royalties for the game, which would end up selling over a million copies. But he was paid the equivalent of like, yeah, like less than uh, 80000 a year in uh, adjusting for inflation. This is still a contentious idea today about crediting. People that leave a, a game development early often have lesser credited roles or aren't even mentioned. A policy that Valve popularized of not giving titles uh, meant that developers have sometimes had to fight to prove what they've done in a project. Going back to the first part, the policy of Atari not giving credit or royalties would lead, incidentally, to several Atari programmers leaving and forming the first third-party developer in North America called Activision. What's, uh, what's really funny to me about that story is that uh, nowadays, and, and you don't see it so much anymore, but there was definitely a lot of um, Easter egg rooms in in. Game Boy Advance games that had just rooms where the developers were given little sprites that you could talk to and say, "Hey, I'm I'm developer X." Like, whoa! <laughs> I I did not realize that that was probably a remnant of, "Hey, labor is not great." <laughs> yeah, that that's just kind of a small tradition there of like having those sorts of uh, secret rooms, uh, and I mean, like also a potential way to show off like somebody's name without getting to the end of a game that was another relevant issue for a long time it's just like well in order to get the credits you have to beat the game mm -hmm. uh and 
And now most modern games have the option to just like see the credits from like the main menu. Mm-hmm. And that that is actually a big a big reason for it. Like so people can more easily demonstrate that their name is indeed in the credits. Mm-hmm. And uh, comedically, a lot of games give you the straight up option to just skip the credits. <laughs> so technically speaking, you can see them. But uh, yeah, most people will not look at them, unfortunately. Yeah, you can tell when developers uh, have some personal hand in uh, creating the trophy slash achievements for a game if there is a trophy slash achievement for watching the credits all the way to the end. Now, while third-party developers became common on all console platforms as well as various computer platforms, one element that one element became nearly universal: any publishing to be deal was skewed towards the publisher. The publisher would provide the money for the game, game development, and advertising, and then the contract usually stipulated that the publisher would receive royalties between 10 and 30 uh, percent after, like, they made back their expenses, depending on the contract. Typically, the publisher would also retain the IP as well. That's why, quite famously, Crash Bandicoot will uh, is part of Activision because. Naughty Dog did their work for Universal, uh, which was then uh, included as part of the merger between Vivendi, Vivendi Games and, and Blizzard with Activision. So if everything goes according to plan, then Crash Bandicoot might be a Microsoft uh, property soon enough, which is weird to think about. Yeah, that's crazy considering that it started on the PS1. Oh, man. What a wild world we live in. Yeah, Yeah, indeed. This still happens today, but ironically, a lot of indie developers are able to retain their IP in a publishing deal, whereas larger AAA studios that do work for hire often retain very little. Even for things like Dark Souls, uh, that's owned by Bandai Namco, despite the fact that it was developed by From Software. Uh, And I don't actually know if that's different for Elden Ring. Uh, but I do know, like, I mean, From Software's marketing position should be pretty good. Uh, and actually, they retain the Sekiro IP. In fact, like, one of the first major breaks was a deal with with Activision. The publisher was so impressed by the original Wolfenstein, they accepted id Software's demand that, the, that they retain the IP when brought it to retail. Part of the reason id was as valuable as it was when it merged with ZeniMax... Uh, and then was purchased by Microsoft is because of the trove of IP it retained. Wolfenstein, Doom, Quake, and Rage. Rage to a much lesser extent. Now, what really revealed the face of AAA game development to the world was the infamous EA spouse post on LiveJournal in 2004, which sounds hilarious talking about uh, LiveJournal nowadays, but, I mean, it was very popular back then. I won't recount the whole thing here, but it, it was a then-anonymous post saying that her husband experienced a schedule of extended and ever-accelerated crunch from 48-hour weeks to 72-hour weeks to 85-hour weeks. The, the physical, emotional, and mental toll of the team was was meaning that their work was becoming worse over time. And in addition, there, there was no overtime pay. No additional vacation days, and they actually wanted to cut down on the comp time after a project is done, which is basically time off to allow someone to recover after a stressful development cycle, and it's extremely common even today. Uh, 
Her husband later led a successful class action lawsuit on behalf of software engineers at EA, which in 2007 awarded the plaintiffs $14.9 million in unpaid overtime. Crunch became well-known publicly at this point, and EA's reputation was damaged. There's evidence that EA has taken steps to make sure this sort of crunch doesn't happen, at least to this degree, but it is still not uncommon in the industry, and the stories around the development of Anthem were truly harrowing. This was Bioware, which was fully owned by EA. There's still a bit of expectation that if someone is happy, they can go someplace else and maybe even work outside the industry. With plenty of young grads looking to join video, video gaming, one thing games does not lack is young people wanting to make their mark on the industry. Yeah, and it's worth noting that another uh, story of notable crunch and people just being put through the ringer is the L.A. Noir developer. Um, I <laughs> heard a lot of stories that uh, they were just taking in new people, working them as much as they could, and then they would walk out. Crunch is not uncommon in the game industry. It's uh, pretty, pretty common. Yeah, like, uh, especially the, the tri- AAA industry, that's a very notable one, since, like, even even though L.A. Noir was uh, a success for Rockstar, they still ended up uh, <laughs> dissolving Team Bondi, because I think they, they felt like the, the studio just wasn't sustainable uh, in its current culture. Mm-hmm. That makes sense that you'd be more aware about, about that as opposed to EA Spouse. Which you uh, you would have been very young when that was happening. Like I remember, there was a I, I was covering the gaming industry at that point, but you uh, you probably hadn't re- reached the age of like reading about games except about like you know the cool new stuff that was coming out. Yeah, two thousand seven. Uh, I was uh, starting middle school, so no idea. <laughs> no, no two thousand four. Oh, two thousand four. Yep. So. Nope. I was in grade school. Even worse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You were. I was playing Hantaro. Rel- <laughs> yeah. Not aware of that, and I, I can't say I love you. But now, there have been two major labor disputes when it relates to the gaming industry, and both of them relate to voice acting. The first was in 2009. It's worth noting that, like, uh, the Screen Actors Guild and the American Federation uh, Television and Radio Writers signed their first contract with major game publishers in 2006. That's part of the reason why a lot of actors previous to that weren't very good, because a lot of SAG and AFTRA actors just wouldn't work in games. But with that contract, that meant that like there was a structure for them to work in games. But it needed to be updated. In 2009, there was a uh, agreement that the that SAG would receive equal wa- wages with AFTRA actors. Both groups received a 2.5% wage increase. Publishers were also required to inform voice actors if, if, when they will be doing quote vocally stressful work. I remember the, this was a big of a to do for things like again like this wasn't very common in the gaming industry, and I think like there was some weird thing that I th- I think sa- somehow like SAG uh, like the SAG members like ended up defeating the me- measure at first like even though most people didn't want to like the the rules around it were were weird but like anyways. The much more famous one that you're probably much more aware of happened in 2016 and 2017, the now-merged SAG-AFTRA, over residual payments, transparency, and voice acting hiring processes so that actors are aware of what type of roles and performance that they're hired for, hired for 
issues related to vocally stressful roles, again, that coming up, and safety precautions while actors are on set, typically for motion capture. The strike lasted 340 days, and while sag after was expecting that this would affect multiple games in the uh, in the publishers they were striking against, since it wasn't a universal thing against against games, a lot of those voice actors worked with uh, like other uh, sm- uh, smaller games. But ultimately, no games were delayed, and some games like Life is Strange Before the so- Storm actually recast certain principal roles. Yeah. Uh, an agreement in 2000, uh, was reached in 2017. It did not include residuals, but does include sliding scale bonus payments for each recording session uh, voice actor participates in. Uh, game, game companies must provide additional tra- transparencies for roles voice actors perform in with new terms. And this, this doesn't mean that... Uh, they disclose exactly what those uh, rules are, but they must provide at least code names, gameplay genre, and if it's based on an existing franchise or character, and whether the work will include profanity, racial slayers, obs- obscure technological terms, that's a funny one, sexual or violent overtures, or physical signs. I guess obscure technological terms, like, that is probably, like, it's probably difficult to do in a convincing fashion, so it's just funny to read there with all that uh, all that other stuff, but I, I imagine that uh, that includes Babylon's Fall, Babylon coffins, and all of that ridiculousness. <laughs> oh yeah, the Gideon's coffin, yeah, like yeah, and yeah, all yeah. like e- e- I yeah, even forgot the name. <laughs> yes, yeah, I can't blame you. Everything, everything about that game. Anyways, uh, the agreement provided a framework that the actors' unions and the game companies will continue to work on ad- addressing additional issues related to vocal stress within recording sessions so that it feels like that is a continuing recurring relevant issue and no perfect thing has come up with but like anyways regardless the framework is still used today for Zagaftra and the gaming industry and it was recently it was most recently extended until november 2022 uh it'll be it'll be i'll be curious to see if that becomes an issue then but yeah we're yeah, were were you aware of the uh, the most re- most recent uh, SAG after strike? I I think I had heard of it. Um, at that time, I was finishing up college. I was uh, going through my senior year courses, but I do remember hearing that uh, voice actors are being recasted in Life is Strange Before the Storm. Um, I do I do remember that, but uh, I didn't know the exact scope of it, and I I didn't know that it still has. Uh, uh, existing repercussions that are still felt today, which I mean, like going over what uh, the terms are, it's definitely a good thing. But yeah, that's uh, it's unfortunate that it has taken so long to get there. <laughs> yeah, I don't think like the whole idea of residuals, uh, which I realize is common in certain other acting industry. Like, I don't think there's ever going to be any any wiggle room on that because, uh, simply put, like. Uh, unlike movies and television shows, like the, the focus is typically not on the performance itself. Like it's on a lot of other factors in games, uh, and also just the fact that, like, as demonstrated by uh, before the uh, before the storm, um, uh, there are plenty of actors who are willing to not work work under the SAG-AFTRA banner. Uh, so. Uh, 
but it's obviously better to have that. Mm-hmm. But all that brings us to today. And there has been a spate of accusations of sexism and abuse in the industry over the past few years. Most notice, notably, Riot Games, Ubisoft, and Activision Blizzard. 44% of game developers would be in favor of unionizing, according to a 2020 poll of 4,000 game workers by the Game Developers Conference. The ABK, Activision Blizzard King, Workers Alliance, and a better Ubisoft have issued various statements lately, and we've covered them, but that's not really at the level of a formal union. North America actually saw its first video game union form at the end of 2021 at Video Games, an indie studio of about a dozen employees. Uh, Game Workers Unite has been helping organize workers in the high-tech and video game industries uh, for the past few years, I think since 2018, and it's the first American initiative of its kind in those sectors. But definitely gaining the most attention has been the Game Workers Alliance, uh, not related to Game Workers Unite, which is the Raven Q&A department that has moved to organize. After conducting a strike for a couple months after some of its members announced that they would be let go, uh, basically because for cost-cutting measures, not because of uh, not not because of uh, Activision was unsatisfied with their work, they ended it, and the GWA asked for recognition from Activision, which Activision Blizzard promptly refused. Instead, moving to reorganize the department. Push, push things back until the whole studio votes on unionization, posted messages highly discouraging unionization, and hiring law firm Reed Smith, known for counterattacking unionization efforts. Those are their words. Microsoft, which is set to acquire Raven with all of Activision Blizzard, recently sent a very crafted legal message. Microsoft will not stand in the way if Activision Blizzard recognizes a union. Microsoft respects Activision Blizzard's employees' right to choose whether to be represented by a labor organization, and we will honor those decisions. Oh, man, that is, that's such legalese for, yeah, don't form a union. (laughs) (laughs) It's more like, you know, yeah, we're we're saying what, like, because we we can't say, no, don't do this, so we are going to say, like, you know, we are legally obligated to say that we we can respect if this happens, but, uh... It's not necessarily a huge de- desire to see it happen. It's funny, like with uh, like so much of this coming back to Ac- Activision a lot of this time, and now like this. Uh, I mean, like even though like formally another studio has already unionized, like if there's a, a union established within a large AAA studio, that is uh, frankly much more relevant news. Um, and. Uh, to that respect, like the industry has changed a lot over the past 40 years, and people now work in a heavily specialized capacity. Artists, designers, engineers, programmers are regimented and typically works on directives from above. AAA games re- regularly see hundreds, if not thousands, of people touch them. The business of making movies and TV shows is highly unionized, and it's not impossible to see gaming moving in that direction. Also important is that college-educated workers that populate the gaming sphere now, uh, a lot of Zoomers and Millennials, have different political attitudes than the previous generation of Boomers and Gen Xers who make games. 
I don't have a crystal ball to see in the future, but if I had to predict something, is that this won't be the last time we talk about labor organization in the gaming industry. Oh, no, absolutely not. With all of the craziness that's been happening at Activision Blizzard, even if they are acquired by Microsoft, which, again, being an if now, they're... I don't, I don't see that as a sustainable thing, especially if if uh, Microsoft just allows it to be swept under the rug. I, I definitely think that the sooner that you know <laughs> workers are able to unionize, the sooner that like quality can increase. And and that's the thing, is that games are such a specifically different industry than music and movies. In that it is, it's very consumer focused in ways that those are not whereas with a movie money is money with a game yes money is money but it's also player engagement the ability to continue to get money it's more of a lasting investment if a game does not have that you know sort of feedback then people are not going to interact with it for example look at babylon's fall having having triple digit numbers in its first week that that uh, indie movies can have triple digits and still be considered successful for a triple A game to have triple digit numbers on its first week that's a failure in every single way and and allowing and and that's not necessarily a company that needs to be unionized but you can see how long term unsustainability would definitely impact games yeah, totally. And I'm, I'm keeping this specific to, like, uh, the United States of America, mm. uh, which we are based. Like, again, like, because, like, I can't speak to the world, like, different world, like, because there are there are game unions in different parts of the world and, and different situ- situations. So, like, and any one topic that we do, like, you know, wouldn't, like, this the scope just wouldn't fit. So, like, we're speaking directly to America. But, yeah, like, I'm expecting the, you know, like, it seems like it's potentially going to change. Like, as I noted, like, uh, I mean, it. So many people like get into the industry and like the ex- expectation of basically giving your life to it, uh, like like sacrificing everything else. Like people will talk about that. Like that's the, uh, and people are passionate enough about games that they're they're willing to do that. But like it, uh, it does feel like particularly in, the, like, after a certain point. Uh, like it would be nice to retain people with with talent and not like completely burn them out and force them into another field, because like maybe they had the temerity to do something like get married and start a family. Mm-hmm. Uh, How dare they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you should. But like, I think there's actually still a prevailing attitude that for some people that basically like you know no like the like that that is what makes this industry work is basically people willing to sacrifice their lives on on the the altar of AAA games in order to make things actually happen, which is like surprisingly pre- prevalent a lot in a lot of places like uh, and also definitely like a lot like depending on the studio but like also a lot of. Uh, a lot of t- a lot of type A personalities, a lot of perfectionists as well. Uh, so, but at the same time, like uh, I mean, there have been other studios like like Insom- Insomniac Games has traditionally been one of, one of the good ones, like known for basically encouraging people to take take time off, like actually encouraging vacations, mm-hmm. uh, keeping the scope relevant. Uh, very rare in the AAA uh, sphere. Like you know, they're of course part of Sony now, mm. but. Um, uh, but yeah, I I know they that like that was kind of one of the the quiet um, 
uh, stories coming out of them for a long time that like you know hey they're actually a, a really good a good place to work and uh, encourage good uh, uh, a good a good life balance and I know uh, Super Giant the makers of Hades like I think are also uh, also renowned for that yeah um, I, I believe they have a mandatory vacation time <laughs> yeah. Like in there, of course, like Supergiant is a much, is a much smaller studio than than Insomniac, but it it is still it is still good to see. Like, um, so yeah, like it's it's going to continue to be it to be an issue. It's it's interesting that like uh, that it's more coming to a head now. Like the uh, of course, like at the same time, it was interesting in doing research from that. Like I actually ca- uh, came across an article in a law firm that was talking about like. You know the the you know the increasing interest in this, but then it was framed at the end from basically this long firm saying like you know you know hey, like hey like this is all an issue like you know hey and to all you employers out there we we can help you deal with this oh. uh, like <laughs> that's very specific yeah, language yeah they're like you know they you know if like th- things that might threaten your bottom line like you know we're, we're gonna we know the ways that can uh, contain the like you know perhaps you know discourage wor- workers from from seeking unionization and if they have unionized like minimizing its impact on your bottom line uh so you know from the other half of it like there's there's definitely uh a lot a lot of people who do not want to see this thing getting off the the ground not the least of which including activision blizzard right now like uh i'm sure they they want uh, the the idea of the the game uh, game workers alliance to uh, to die in the crib mm-hmm. but uh, we will see um, that was a brief history of labor organization in North America thank you all for listening again like uh, we're gonna be shifting to a violent weekly schedule from uh, now on but I still want to like in upcoming topics talk about uh f- five five years of the, the switch uh which is certainly a a still very relevant thing and talk about uh our follow-up and conclusion on Dis- disco elysiums as well talk about mechanics and systems uh in games and what's the, what's the difference uh like a lot of things we're we're not coming cutting back on what like what we want to to be in the podcast but uh it's just the the times outputting that is uh is what's going to change so we hope you all will uh continue to to, li- to listen to us because uh, we definitely do want to continue to to keep this up and uh ask you to to understand like the the other pressures that are that are on us in our in our everyday lives like it'd be wonderful this could be a full-time thing but that is uh, just not the reality right now but well, that's it. Thank you all for listening, and hopefully we will see you all next time. Until then. <laughs>